Fertility is complicated. I'm here to answer all your questions. Welcome to my podcast where we discuss all things fertility. I'm your host and fertility expert, Kalise. Let's be honest. You have some Kansas City bragging rights right now, don't you? Like, that's true. Well, not only there's this guy named Mahomes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I kind of heard about him. Yep. So <laughs> how did that go here? Were you guys pretty excited? Yeah, very excited. It, it was it was surreal because it had been so long yeah. since they'd won. And uh, it's such a big football city. And uh, it was just, just amazing and long time coming. Yeah. Well, I saw your whole staff was uh, in their KC jerseys. Yeah, we had, we had jersey week. Yeah. <laughs> The whole week. Joy, the office manager, said, yeah, you could just all week. I love Usually it. it's just Fridays. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I think that's great. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very jealous because, you know, I'm used to mm-hmm. the Broncos doing something. And Usually they just the Broncos not. are uh, not recently, but over the past decades, they've been a lot better than yeah. the Chiefs. Yeah, it's true. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in really Oklahoma, uh, and finished high school there and went to college at a liberal arts school in San Antonio called Trinity. And so they have a very rigorous liberal arts curriculum, and I had to take a lot of uh, those kinds of classes like jazz history and styles and uh, racquetball and Asian (laughs) religions and so forth. But the first two years, I did all of my medical school curriculums and prerequisites. And then the last two years, I got my business degree in business administration and came really close to having, well, I guess I had a business administration degree uh, with a concentration in finance. And I almost had uh, a minor in, in chemistry. Yeah. So then, uh, and I did that really because at the time we had kind of a challenging professor and he headed up all the pre-med students and he really scared us to death because he thought that he he really led a lot of us to believe that we weren't going to be successful. Just generally, he told, there were a couple hundred people who wanted to be doctors and, you know, so I decided I better have a backup plan. So I had I got that degree in business, but uh, I didn't need it at the time because then I did interview at for medical school and began that process and started looking at lots of places. But my home state of Oklahoma interviewed me quickly and yeah. then about a week later accepted me. So so did you always know that was the direction you were going to go? That's a good question. Uh, My wife and I were actually talking. No, I didn't. I have uh, two uncles. I mean, I have some medicine in the family. My uh, mother uh, is a retired occupational therapist. Uh, One of my uncles, uh, now deceased, was a general practitioner down in the Georgia area. And then my other uncle, who who was and still is a mentor for me, was was an OBGYN in Missouri. And he's actually quote-unquote retired, but... He lives in Castle Rock now. Oh, does he? Mm-hmm. And so he still 
he retired, but didn't really retire. So he's still so, yeah, doing. He's on staff down at the the hospital oh, down there. That's awesome. You know the one where we had I, the, the I, practice. I, at. The one. Yes. Yeah, the one exactly. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, I I really think I started thinking about it uh, in my senior year of high school and uh, early in college, and took the classes. I the uncle, the one I just mentioned, he. Uh, was a mentor, but he let me work, come to work with him. So I would follow him around and... Uh, you had some exposure ex then. Get exposed to women's health. Uh, but he also really wanted me to learn about other fields. So he would have me spend a half a day with a radiologist or a half a day with a urologist or a half a day with an internal medicine doctor. So, yeah, so did had, you just do that for fun or did you have a high school class that said, no, I, I want you to go fun. out and career day? No, oh, okay. no, I just did that. Uh, you know, I remember um, that was when I started learning to tie suture. Really? He taught me how to tie surgical knots. We'd have a big, one of those big old cast iron skillets. Okay. Because they're really heavy. And you'd put the suture through the handle, the hole in the handle. Okay. And that's how you learn to tie suture. That's how I learned to tie suture. Wow. So Back yeah, in that, the day. Back. Yeah, you could, <laughs> you could do anything. People practice on pig's feet that you buy at the supermarket. But that was, those were my earliest memories. And yeah, I did think. I, did, I really did enjoy it. I thought it was amazing. So I, I think my uncle and, you know, I guess I'm, I'm very practical about things too. I wanted to really have an occupation that I thought that I could provide for my family with and would, you know, some of the other benefits that, of course, there's the benefit of taking care of patients and all of that satisfaction. That's, you know, number one through five or so, but it's Which really... Which you're so good at. Yeah, well, thank you. But you're it's welcome. also really nice that, you know, for the most part, um, you can pay off your school loans and help um, help your your kids get to college. Right. And so you talked a little bit about your mom in occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. Did you ever go to work with her and experience what she Yes, did absolutely. So that was kind of something we had exposure to on a weekly basis. So just because, you know, of, of what she did for a living, but it wasn't just occupational therapists. It was physical therapists and speech therapists. So kind of, they call those the allied health professionals, but those those folks were, were part of an everyday life uh, for us and, you know, and are wonderful fields to be in. Yeah. Now, do you have siblings? One brother. One brother. Mm -hmm. And did he also go into the medicine? No, he's a business guy. Oh. Uh, he and my dad um, uh, were involved in design and installing recreational playground equipment and uh, large... Um, kind of canopies or covers yeah. like uh, they've done some work at uh, uh, the Kansas City Zoo in fact oh, yeah. um, they do a lot of uh, work with uh, universities yeah it sounds fun and creative yes yeah yes so now where did you meet Jen where did you meet your wife <laughs> so Jen and I well even backing up a little bit more so sure. I, I mentioned my uncle yeah the one that is an OBGYN. And when I got into, I think it was medical school, you know, and, and I was still a single guy, or maybe it was late in medical school or early in residency. I can't quite remember, but he said, you know, you're probably going to end up marrying a medical person. 
And I thought, no, I don't really want to marry a medical person because, you know, it'd be nice to have someone completely different than me. And uh, he, but he cautioned me. He said, well, you know, practically that's where you spend all your time. And that's probably where you're going to end up meeting somebody. So uh, I ended up being wrong and he ended up being right because Jen, when I met her, was, um, she's still young, but she was a very young labor and delivery nurse. So that's how we met, uh, just kind of through, the, the, the truth is she was working with one of our senior nurses who was also a mentor to me, and she thought Jen and I would just hit it off. And we tried for a long time not to, not to like each other. We just <laughs> thought that- The matchmakers got in the way. Yeah, and we thought that people who work together shouldn't co-mingle. And uh, so, yeah, we met it on labor and delivery and and uh, tried not to like each other for a long time. And then we went on a few dates and we found out we did like each other. <laughs> <laughs> and then we didn't tell anybody for a very long time. Uh, so uh, when did you tell your uncle? Oh, I think he knew. Yeah. We just didn't share that with the other residents at the time. Right. Or the other nurses at the time. I think we were practically engaged before many of them knew. Oh, wow. And they were uh, maybe a little hurt because they said, well, we didn't know this was going on, and we never would have guessed it because we were yeah. super, um, we tried to be super professional. Yeah. Would that have hurt your residency, though? Did you feel like that no, was a conflict no. of interest or anything like no, that? No, no, not at all. And No, that wasn't ever really uh, a concern for us. We just... You know, there, look, there, there are lots and lots of doctors and nurses and other hospital employees dating one another. It just, I think we just wanted to be, uh, Jen always has and, you know, wanted her own career and her own profession. And so we, we tried to keep that separate. And then I think probably we're both so careful because we were thinking, well, what if it doesn't work out? You know, uh, but it did work out and here we are. Yeah. And here you are. Yes. So um, you left me, which I still haven't really forgiven you <laughs> for yet. But you came to Kansas City and you mm -hmm. started a practice. Mm -hmm. And you decided that doing that with your wife was a good idea. Yeah, we... You can, yeah, right. It's a little <laughs> bit contradictory based on what I just said. We, we had this dream that we would, well, I should say I had this dream, and Jen supported the, my dream that, that I would come back to Kansas City, and we knew there was a need in this market to, for, for hopefully a high-quality physician and a high-quality practice, and that I could take a lot of the things that I had learned and bring that back here. And we were in the process of getting that started. And it, it's one thing to, to think it up and to dream it up. And that's important. But then when you go to start translating that into reality, it's a big job. Yeah. And our initial plan was that Jen was going to work as a, as a nurse practitioner in the, what just in the women's health field is a, at an OBGYN office, and she even interviewed uh, at some places. And I think Jen saw it before I did or could, but I think Jen realized I couldn't do it by myself, that I was going to need some help. 
And uh, she was absolutely right. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's been as important as anybody, including me, uh, to the success that we've had. And I'm, I thank God every day that she came on board. Yeah. It's had its challenges. Um, it is difficult for uh, a husband and wife to work together. But I think that uh, over the last three years, we've worked it out. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we just kind of have a natural rhythm to it, and it works great. Oh, good. And that we're a really good team. And in the same manner, many of our patients, almost all of our patients, do not know that we're married. Is that right? Yeah. And they come to us in, in, almost on a weekly basis um, and say, I didn't know you and Dr. Riggs were married. That's right. Most of them just find out because... Uh, when she prescribes a prescription, it'll have her last name on the. So they they link up Jennifer Riggs with Ryan Riggs and yeah, and um, then they put they put it together. They put it together. Yeah, exactly. But so, we don't wear that on our sleeves, obviously. Yeah, the conversations that you and Jen would have had getting ready to uh, start working together, those must have been a little difficult because there had to have been a lot of fear. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Because the rationale for Jen working for another group or another hospital was be, would be that, frankly, she would have that independent income stream in the early days because we didn't know that we were going to be, get, uh, that, that we were going to be a successful, that we were going to have this gift of blue sky, that patients were going to honor us in the way that we had. And uh, you know me, I'm a practical guy and I'm a guy who likes to plan you know, absolutely. And that was the idea that, 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 and another thing you think about things like health insurance, where does health insurance come from? And if, if, if Jen is working for, you know, say St. Luke's or HCA or Kaiser, whatever it is, then, you know, obviously my daughter and I could be on her health insurance. Uh, and that, those are all things you start to think about, like, you know, when you're starting a business and why it's so hard. Uh, yeah, it was extremely challenging and I was nervous. You have this vision, you have this dream, you think that what you believe is what patients will respond positively to, what they will like. And, you know, my vision was that we would take care of patients like, like they were our family, that we would be, I joke around the cheers bar of infertility. We would, we would know the patient's names. We would know more than just, you know, what their fertility characteristics were. And that's a big part of that. To me, that's super um, satisfying. Uh, but the point being, you don't know until you try that it's really going to be what patients want. That's ultimately been the case. As medicine and, and fertility medicine has kind of aggregated itself and you get large hospital systems and even venture capitalists buying up practices, uh, that just contributes more and more and more to patients feeling like a number. Right. It's going in the, we are going in the exact opposite direction of that trend. But yes, it was very scary in the beginning, but I think in credit to Jen, she realized we just had to go all in. Yeah. We were going all in. But yeah, there were uh, some some days and weeks and probably months in the uh, early year or the early days that, uh, yeah, I was, I was nervous. 
Yeah. You know, but there you just there is a point in all this. You you have you jump off the cliff. Yeah. You you either do or you don't. You know, and I realized at the time I was let's see, about 41 or 42 years old. I said, I can't do this when I'm 60 probably or 65. It's just now or never and you have this great opportunity. You've always thought about it, you've always dreamed about it, you've always said you would do it. Then you just have to do it. So you jump off the cliff, but uh, you hope you have a parachute. Yeah. Those that know you had no doubt that you would be successful. Well, thank you. And I know that you probably didn't feel that at times. I did not. But there was no doubt. (laughs) I remember when you first came out here before your first office opened. Mm -hmm. And I sat down with you Mm -hmm. and I wanted to see, like, what is your office going to look like? Mm -hmm. And you had some makeshift blueprints. Mm -hmm. And you went through those, and you were deciding on color mm-hmm. and on carpet, on where were the rooms going to be. Mm-hmm. That was fun. That seemed to be fun. Yeah, we've kind of become professional office designers. <laughs> we, it's true. We uh, we designed our office over in the, the Brookside area, and uh, that was our first. And we had, you know, there's no how to design an office class in, in medical school or residency. There's... You know, it's all focused on medicine, and there's so much that, you know, medical school and residency doesn't prepare you for. But, yeah, we, we designed that office, and we're sitting, and that office was, I think it's about 1,650 square feet. And then we moved to, we always knew we wanted to be a full-service clinic. We wanted to be able to offer, as so many other clinics do, um, services everything under one roof including the IVF lab including the storage of the embryos and the egg retrieval and we couldn't do that over at the original office and so that's why we expanded and 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 grew and built this office out here in the uh what I call the suburbs in in Johnson (laughs) County and um you know this office is about over 5,000 square feet and so I think we got a little bit better the second time and now actually and I don't know if I'm sure we're gonna uh, double the space at the Brookside office, and we're oh my goodness. far into we're, we're ready to start what I call swinging hammers there. Wonderful. And that's going to be about three thousand square feet total. And then this office, uh, the dentist next door is leaving, and we're going to take her two thousand square feet. So we're going to have a, a, a we need a larger conference room to have our classes in because we realized uh, a conference room for ten people wasn't big enough. And we're going to have, uh, you know, more space for nursing, more space for billing. And uh, we're actually going to, this won't surprise you, uh, we're going to purchase a, an HSG machine. Wonderful. And, yeah, so. Um, well, you got all that going. That's why, yeah, I have experience doing that, that in, in Denver. Right. And I've always wanted to do that, too. Uh, frankly, because sometimes uh, we love our radiology friends, but as you know, Sometimes patients don't have as good an experience getting that HSG there. That's right. And we want to be able to provide that service for them, again, on-site. Will you have um, the nurse practitioner do the HSGs? Yes, if and we can, absolutely. Do you have to have a certified radiologist present? or No, and, and, and to be completely candid with you, every state has slightly different laws uh, about who can dispense radiation. Uh, for example, in Colorado, where you live and where I was, uh, radiation can only be dispensed by a physician 
or by a certified radiation technologist. Um, uh, so, and, and every state varies from state to state. So we'll, we have to kind of work out those details, but yeah. I'm hoping that uh, my nurse practitioners can assist in that regard, because as you know, I can only be in so many places at once. And, and if, if they can't, then we'll just have to uh, hire uh, an RT, a radiation technologist, to be present. Sure. So the two different offices, you know, having, you know, managed and developed the first office, what did you find um, worked really well in that office that you also placed here at the Overland Park office? Uh, that's a good question. Um, was the flow the same? Like you came into the reception yeah. area, you went, so did you change any of the flow that patients? Yes. I mean, there were definitely things that we added and that we, we knew we, when you start a business, you, you have to start, you want to start with the cost as low as possible, which was the initial approach at Brookside. So uh, for example, at Brookside, there's no dedicated area for, for drawing blood. Here we have a dedicated phlebotomy area. Uh, we knew, for example, we wanted to have larger rooms uh, because we do a lot of procedures, as you know, and, you know, uh, I just like not being, I, I want patients to feel more like this is a spa than it's a hospital room. And so uh, that was uh, something that we did. Yeah, we tried to design this one in a way that... Uh, it's just like basically was a large rectangle. So you gut it and we call it a scrape and scrap or scrap and scrape. You just take it right down to the concrete. So we had more options with what we could do here. We had more space and the space over at Brookside was a little bit, you're, you're constrained by the exterior angles and dimensions of that building. Uh, and it was smaller, I think is the biggest factor. But so we tried to think about, you know, uh, what it, what that would look like, that journey through the clinic would look like from the patient's perspective. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, and then of course it was totally different because we have a whole IVF lab section here right. and we had to, uh, I'm a big fan of security and what I, I, you know, so we were trying to keep that area kind of cordoned off. We, you don't want every patient that walks through the door uh, walking around right next to your IVF laboratory because air quality is so important and just security. So we have this back area back here that for the most part is really only directly related to the lab. And and so uh, we had to think about that. And, uh, you know, uh, we we didn't have an office manager when we started. Yeah. And we started with, um, you know, four employees, one of which was me. And then, of course, Jen, my wife. And uh, now we have uh, about 22 employees. And that doesn't include our nurse anesthetist team or uh, right. our, our independent contracting or contractor, Dr. Wilson, who's our laboratory director. Right. So when I walk into the clinic, either one, um, the people that work here seem to be very happy. And you visited clinics as many times as I have also, but you can walk into a clinic and you know that that's a good team. Sure by the way that they treat each other, they talk to you. Even when I came here today standing in the lobby, not just one person asked if they could help me. Three people wow. well, asked that makes if they me could proud. help me. And you should be. So That's who wonderful. did the hiring? How did you work that <laughs> Well, as you know, good people are hard to find. Yeah. I, I think that 
you didn't ask this question, but I'm sure you're going to get to. I think the HR piece is is that piece is one of the most challenging things that that I have to tackle. A lot of doctors, I think they're not good business people. I think they're not good money people. Um, I like to think I have a leg up on most doctors because of my undergraduate degree and my business background. And I actually enjoy that. I like the entrepreneurial piece. But the HR piece is challenging. And so, um, you know, we have – how do we hire people? We uh, we certainly aren't haven't been perfect and – there are just some cases where people just aren't a good fit. And you touched on it. Every clinic or, or every company has a culture and a personality. And uh, sometimes uh, you, you kind of date somebody and they're not a bad person and you're not a bad person, but you're just, you just don't work. So I think the same thing goes here. We, my approach has been to hire extremely, what I view, talented individuals. Are you personally interviewing them yourself? Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's changed a little bit because obviously we now have uh, our wonderful, really, really wonderful office manager, Joy. Uh, it, it, yes, I, I, I think Joy, I mean, in the early days, I interviewed everybody. Absolutely. I mean, I, I interviewed them. I was between me and Jen, you know, we were doing everything. We would uh, write contracts and you know, uh, that's just what it was. Everybody had about one million jobs. We yeah. only have four people. We've been able to refine that over time. But I, I guess I would say that, yes, I generally interview most of the employees. Um, and so uh, especially uh, the clinical people. So there's no way that, that we would hire a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a PA or an embryologist without me meeting them. But I think what's changed is back in the early days, I would be that guy on the phone literally calling somebody and saying, hey, this is Dr. Riggs. I saw your your CV on Indeed.com. Now I have uh, people like Joy who can you know, call 20 people and bring three to me and say, hey, I've got these three people. I really like them. And I've, I've had a phone interview with them and I'd like to bring them in and meet you. Yeah. So that's, I think, what's changed. But no, the people, there's nothing more important than our people. That's true. The culture at the office, though, is very, they're very kind. They, they are genuine in your office. Mm-hmm. So how do you maintain that? And how do you maintain, well, you know, keeping all of these good people? Well, there's a lot of, I think there there's several answers to that question. Because nurse retention is really hard yeah. in the fertility. And we've got some fantastic, we've had almost no turnover. We wow. really, really have. We've had one individual who was a front office person and she had her mother became chronically ill and had to go, um, was just ill and she wanted to stay with her and uh, we, we just have not had a lot of, of turnover. And, and like you said, that is antithetical. That's, inc- that's just not what's going on in the rest of the Yeah, that's world. unheard of. They're just running through nurses like water. Yeah. I have uh, one of the pharmaceutical reps said, told me that uh, she doesn't even learn the na- nurses' names anymore because when she goes back in a month, she says they're all gone. She's that's like, right. I don't even need to learn their name because they're not going to be there when I go back in a month. That's exactly right. We, we're, we're the opposite of that. We don't want to be that. I know that, but we want to hire good people 
Uh, so you, and you asked me, you said, how do you, how do, you do that? Uh, the answer is you're not always perfect. You know, there's all kinds, of, you can interview people and, and you can background check people and you can give them, a, you know, some of these personality tests. But in the end, uh, you just have to take a chance on these people and um, you do your absolute best. And, but I think that, uh, honestly, that a lot of it comes from the top down. You know, employees are always going to take their cues from the leadership. Mm -hmm. And you can't say to your employees, it's not effective to say, I want you to be really hard, work really, really hard, and I want you to do a really great job, but I'm going to leave every day at 2 o'clock. It's just, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And it doesn't work for your kids either. Yeah. So I think that part of my responsibility is to set that standard. And I, but I also believe very much in, like, uh, well, one, I think pay matters. Uh, so uh, you don't want to, if you hire good people, you should pay them well. Yes. That's important. It's not the only thing. Most people don't leave because of pay disputes. They leave because of they don't feel a sense or a lack of appreciation and respect. Uh, with that being said, it, it does matter. Uh, money does play a role. But, uh, you know, and, but, and I was going to say, it, you also, I believe very much in expecting a lot out of my employees and holding them accountable. And if you don't, in a way, you're, you're, you're disrespecting them. You're saying it's okay if you perform below your potential. Well, in a way, that you're letting your employee down. You're saying it's okay if you're a C minus employee. Well, we don't have C minus employees. We only have A employees. You know, doesn't mean folks don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they can't get better. But they need to know that you know you're you expect a lot. In you know. Uh, Sometimes they don't work out. Right. And that is my job to say there does come a point where you may just have somebody who can't play ball for the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> they're, just, they're just not going to make the cut. Right. And then you have to uh, help them find um, an option or a place that's right for them. Well, I think it says a lot about you. I think people want to be here because of the way you treat them, mm -hmm. because of the example you are. I know that's what I experienced when I worked with you. Thank you. So I can certainly see that here. Are you a workaholic? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 100%. So, 100%. So how do you clear your mind from the day? What do, you, do you have anything, hobbies and something enjoyable you like to do? That's a, that's a great point. So one of the things I learned uh, from one of my previous bosses uh, was that, and I'm not very good at this, but you, you have to take some time away. You have to take some vacation. And, and, and this is where she was right, because that's how you recharge. Because if you just work, 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 300, it's very easy to do. It's easy to work 52 or 51 weeks a year and never take a break. But you have to recharge yourself. So, How many hours a day do you think you work? Well, it, it varies. But okay. How about a week? 80. That's what I thought. 80 or 100. 
It varies. I mean, uh, and most you function judges, okay working eighty to one hundred hours a week. Yeah, but getting back to your original question, you, you've got it. You asked about hobbies, yeah. so uh, you know I really like to scuba dive. Uh, so that's a hobby, but I haven't been since two thousand sixteen. So that's and I've got a trip planned this May actually. But you, you've got to have, and, and I, I'm working. I need to do better there. You know, it's great that you can have a hobby of scuba diving, but when you live in Denver or you live in Kansas City, it's not something you can walk out your front door and do. Right. And then, you know, I've got a daughter who's going into high school and you realize how quick they're growing up and you, you, you just know you have this window with them and, and uh, you know, life moves fast and uh, it's, it's extremely fragile, but you've got to find a way to balance. And so I need to do a better job of that. Um, you know, in, in, in finding, I do like to work out. I do like to go to the gym. I don't do enough of it, but I think that the people in the field of medicine who have been successful over the long term have found a way to balance. I call it work hard, play hard. You're always going to work hard if you're good at this job. It's just, it's just part of it. If you don't work hard, you're just not going to be good at it. That's how it is. But you've got to have an out. And I tell my patients this too, and You'll get this. I mean, infertility care is, is just such a stressful time, and it, it's, it's just like a pressure cooker for these people. And again, I know I'm the kettle calling the pot black, but, you know, I'm like, what, I often ask them just what you ask me. What's your hobby? What, what do you do? Uh, it, it doesn't matter where it is. Maybe you do crossword puzzles. Maybe you exercise. Maybe you cross-stitch. I really don't care. Maybe you work in the garden, but you've got to have an outlet that is just for you. And, and that's true for doctors, too. I, I really believe that. So yeah, we, it's, it works. I've worked a lot. Um, as we've gotten a little bit bigger, I, I've had the ability, I, I guess I've just had to learn to, to balance things. I've had to learn to be okay with not being here every minute. And, you know, I mentioned hiring good people, but you got to walk the walk and talk the talk. And what I mean by that is when you hire good people, you got to say, all right, I've got all these good people around me and it's okay this afternoon if I go to the gym or if I take a little time for myself. Right. So um, that's been uh, hard for me because I view blue sky as just, it's just, it's just a part of me. Uh, but you, you got to hire good people and you've got to learn to delegate but it's your baby. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But you, you can't do it. You can't be here every minute. No. You, you just have to. I, I say this all the time. You got to hire good people and you got to trust that they're going to do a good job. Yeah. Now, when you go on your trip in May, mm -hmm. will you have, will you take the downtime or will you can? Uh -huh. <laughs> well, a couple things have happened. I, I, I for, yeah, as things were just in the beginning, I, yeah, I, I, I was afraid to leave. Um, but I've managed to uh, get another physician in town who's a, a wonderful, wonderful person, outstanding surgeon. So she'll be able to cover the practice in my absence. So I like that. And, and I really, really, really trust this, this lady. She's, she's amazing. And so, I, you know, this is a lady I would let operate on my wife. So if I would let her operate on my wife, I know she's going to take great care of our patients. So you asked a funny, uh, what kind of an ironic question. She's like, well, you really, well, so... <laughs> like everyone else, I can kind of beat the system. So we're supposed to go on this boat. It, it, we've done this many times, you probably recall. And so we live on a boat and there's not a lot of outside contact 
But I was debating, and, and I, I won't um, deny, I was debating purchasing a satellite phone. <laughs> Don't and do checking, it! And checking in. But I think, you know, it, it's just, when you're just used to, you know, and it's just me right now, and of course we're looking to add a doctor, and but that's got to be the right person. But, you know, when you're used to um, every minute just live and breathe in, uh, blue sky it is hard but that goes to balance and that's for me to work on but yeah I think I won't do the satellite phone good yeah I'm really I have seriously debated it you can rent them yeah. they're available yeah. uh, but part of the reason why my wife likes this dive trip idea and she doesn't go I go with a another buddy of mine and uh, is that there isn't there's no internet there's there you have to shut down you eat we their their motto is eat sleep and dive that's all we do that's all you do and yeah it is wonderful sounds amazing yes and you deserve it well you were um 2019 top doc true yeah and you didn't get there easily you've worked really hard yeah um in the in the the Kansas City area there's a a magazine called 435 and that's for Interstate 435 and it used to be 435 South so that was the southern part of kind of the metro and I think they've changed it to just 435 so you get this whole area of Kansas City and the reason you know there and you know this Khalees there are awards out there that can be bought oh sure and what I'm proud of this one because it's not bought I've never bought an award I've never no. I get that stuff all the time and uh, you know yeah. Yeah. I just can't it's, it's like a you know these reputation management companies, you know, I, I can't stand something that's not genuine, whether it's a patient review or, or, or an award. But the, anyway, the reason why this award I'm proud of is it comes from other physicians in the community. That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, 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 I seem to get it every year. I'm very proud to receive it. We have a lot of, um, physicians who are patients and refer to us. So, yeah, it's a big honor. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, we just take, I, I just tell, I tell my staff, you know, the best marketing we can do is a, is a patient who's pregnant, happy, and successful. And so uh, that's, that's been our motto. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, a plumber or you're a politician or you're a professional sports player or another physician. It doesn't matter. We treat everybody the same here. And, um, you know, it's, it's held us in good stead. So, but I, you know, I think that, uh, the point being those people may tell their OBGYN how happy they were with us. Yeah. And, uh, so hopefully that's what's led to the award. Yeah. That's great. Good for you. So you talked a little bit about your daughter going into high school. It's unbelievable. Yes. Um, do you have a fertility story on your, of your own? You mean my daughter? Yeah. No, she just kind of happened. She kind of happened. <laughs> <laughs> and you were one and done. Yeah, um, that's kind of the interesting story. It's a little bit personal, but, you know, uh, we, we weren't uh, necessarily trying to have a kiddo in that moment. But uh, both Jen's best friend and my best friend, uh, when, when Jen got pregnant, told us the same thing and they didn't know each other they were from different worlds you know Jen's friend best friend was from Florida and my best friend uh, was a guy named Nabil and he lived in Houston but you know when when Jen got pregnant with Kylie they both said well we're really glad this happened 
We said, well, we just weren't planning for this to happen right now. And they both said, we're glad it happened because we think you two would just work too hard and you would just never get around to having a kiddo. <laughs> and by the time you decided you were ready, it might have been too late. So, uh, yeah, Kylie, we weren't necessarily trying to have, have a kiddo, but it, it happened and uh, we're, we just we love her to death. And she's amazing. She's amazing. And I think that uh, Lisa and Nabil were both correct in their assessment. Right. I think we probably just would have said, well, we'll get around to having a kid when we do X and we'll get around to having a kid when we pay off our student loans and then we're going to buy a house and then we, we want to do. And I think we might have just turned around and been 50 and said, it's too late to have a yeah, kid. What happened? Exactly. Is Jen a workaholic like you are? Yeah, pretty much. She would probably disagree with that statement, but yeah, for sure. She works all the time. Yeah. We kind of we compliment each other. We're complimentary workaholics. What I mean is, you know, Jen's that person. I mean, she will stay up till two or three o'clock night, at night working oh. all the time, doing patient calendars, uh, looking at the books. Now, I'm not that guy. I... I, I, you maybe, maybe to some degree you ask me, do, do I, you know, what about balance? One thing I do try to reserve for myself is sleep, for real. I, you know what, I'm going to give a, a, a shout to Dr. Bush about that. One of my, my old boss and, 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 and someone who I learned a ton from. But I remember talking to Dr. Bush and I don't know, there must have been something going on. And he said, I'm going to, I'm just going to go home and go to bed. And I said, kind of early. <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe they 30 or nine. It wasn't. And he says, well, I've got surgery tomorrow and, you know, I, I need to be my best. And I thought about that a lot. And I thought he was joking at first, but he wasn't kidding around. And, you know, so I look at it that way. I, I say, hey, I've got egg retrievals tomorrow or I've got transfers tomorrow. You know, am I better doing a transfer with four hours of sleep or eight? Plus, I like to sleep. So yeah, I do I go to bed pretty early. Uh, point being, Jen likes to work late, and that's kind of her thing. And I um, typically will go to bed early and then wake up really early. Yeah. So, yeah, she but she works a lot. I think she would also tell you that... Uh, I think she would tell you that time is productive for her because both Kylie and me are asleep. Oh, yeah. Right? So she can get done. She doesn't have... You know, she and I often talk, and everybody knows, and I always tell my staff, and this gets bad, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, in sort of my vision of, of how things are operating, I'm not in the middle. I'm not at the top. It's the patient that's in the middle. So the patient's in, it's at the center of, of a wheel, and there's all these different inputs into the patient, um, you know, and there's the nursing team, and the embryology team, and the billing team, and, 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 and the folks who are supporting them, and family, and there's me. Um, you know, so everything should revolve around the patient, uh, in my opinion, not the doctor, which I know that there's a lot of physicians who wouldn't agree with that, but... Yeah. You know, my view is the patient's the boss. Yeah. They, they, in the end, they're paying the bill. They're keeping the lights on. So, you know, to, to, to every degree possible within reason, I say, here's my rule. You know, the patient's always right. If the patient's wrong, see rule number one. Yeah. And, and that's generally true with rare, rare exception. But, uh, you know, uh, what I was getting to, though, is the other thing is obviously, you know, when you can work and all you have to do is what you're trying to get focused on, and there's no interruptions, uh, you get a lot done. So that's why I think she works then. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to backtrack. What, what was your favorite diving experience? Like, what, what draws you to oh, scuba well, diving? Oh, I, I, the beauty. I, I, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's like you're hopefully not in, in an obtrusive way, but you're, you're down there and you're 100 feet underwater. It's very quiet. And you can't talk to anybody. I mean, you're think about it. Yeah. And it, it's it's like you're you're in a place where it, I guess in a way people normally aren't or maybe shouldn't be. And so I find it very peaceful. I find it good exercise. And you just it's also a little bit of a thrill, um, you know, and it's not for everybody. Jen doesn't do it because she's claustrophobic. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. She shouldn't do it. And, and, you know, it's exciting. You never know what you're going to see. You might see a reef shark. You might see a turtle. You might see an octopus. You might just see some fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you ever have um, an experience that scared you a little bit, made you wonder why you were doing it? No. Well, uh, sort of. Diving with sharks or... Yeah. Oh, we, you know. we dive with... And, Seeing a shark is not considered a bad thing in the diving world. We, we uh, sharks typically will not approach humans. They, the, the, at least as I've been told, right? I mean, I suppose <laughs> it's a gamble, but you know, the 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 tanks they they put off a sound and a vibration, so they typically don't approach you. But yeah, there was. Um, I will tell you a short story. I was diving down in uh, Belize in uh, pretty shallow diving most of it less than 60 feet of depth which is 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 fine and there's a lot to see um one of the things that the dive master and the captain were doing that in retrospect they probably shouldn't have done was they were chumming the water so they put some fish out and we didn't do that but and that would draw sharks and and the reason why that's is that can be dangerous i mean looking back i mean in the moment i'm like this is pretty cool (laughs) but we had kind of a guest dive instructor. He was, you know, kind of, I think, living on the boat and learning the ways and uh, almost like a journeyman. And, um, you know, I was, I, I like to, usually you'll have a group of people and not everybody has to stick together. But, you know, you'll, we'll follow along the dive master, who, one of the people who, who lives on the boat and they know the area. And... I like to be at the back. I, I guess maybe it's part of my, that way I can see everybody. Uh, and so, yeah, we had chumped some of the, they had chumped some of these sharks. And there, sometimes the shark will just swim along uh, the entire way. And there, this shark, to my mind, seemed like he was getting awfully close, really close. But I was like, no, I'm just imagining things. And the reason why this story, so after it was a, a fun dive, I mean, this shark was just falling us the whole way, probably 30, 40 minutes as we just swam along, you know, a ridge. And the, uh, as I was just mentioning, the, the young guy that was just kind of the journeyman dive instructor, kind of the apprentice, he says, you know, Ryan, he said, that shark was really, really close to you. So that's about my only scare. I, I do think that in looking back, you know, again, that's putting that the chum out. That's that's 
that's not fair to the shark. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so yeah, that was maybe a little scary, but we've never, you know, we've actually had to kind of rescue a couple people over the years. Oh, uh, yeah. Buddy and I, my, my dive buddy's name truly is Buddy. Oh. <laughs> my dive buddy, Buddy and I. We're like the responsible guys that everybody wants to dive with. After a day or two, they kind of realize, uh, you know, we're not super experienced, but we both have several, you know, we've done hundreds of dives, which is a lot. And we've been around, we, we haven't, because we both work and he's an aerospace engineer, but, you know, we've dove the Caymans multiple times and Belize and uh, Bahamas and Turks and Caicos. But anyway, so folks usually kind of want to, there'll be some people who will come up to us at some point and say, hey, do you mind if we kind of hang with you? And that's completely fine. It's like a, it's a safety thing and it's a, it's kind of a, a larger buddy system. But yeah, we've, we've had, to, had to rescue a couple. We had one lady kind of get out there and people get into trouble just when they, um, they kind of, uh, get nervous and, and scared and uh, they panic a little bit but yeah we had one lady we were just getting ready to go on a dive and I think she just took some waves in the face and she got a little bit nervous and credit to to buddy he he got her back on the boat and everything was fine she was just on the surface but was buddy already in the water yeah we were we were both in the water yeah we could just tell you can kind of watch somebody and tell that they're they're under duress I think and I just you know it's one of those things that she had just put her put her oxygen, you know, she'd have just, she'd have been fine. But yeah. I think the problem is when people panic, they oh, stop yeah. thinking. Well, I've, I've only uh, gone on one dive, and I was only down about 60 feet. 60, but, yeah. But I got really nauseated. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw yeah. up. I'm 60 it's feet down. I'm going to throw up. Yeah, but you can and throw up down there. You can throw well, up in the mask. That I didn't know. <laughs> and so, of course, dummy me, you know, I hit the surface. Uh, okay, that's and not bad. the instructor that was out there just grabbed me by the back of my sure. um, jacket, BC, whatever I had. Yeah. yeah, and towed me back, mm -hmm. and he's like, you're done for the day. Oh, <laughs> so, well, that was, I think probably. And I was sick the rest of the day. Uh, I mean, sick. It's disorienting, though. It See, is. So the very thing you didn't like is, what I, to me, I love when you kind of start out and you know there's a column of divers going down and you can just kind of see everybody it's a three-dimensional experience right yeah. i love that part yeah that's the exact and that's the part that jen wouldn't like and probably but it can be disorienting right it when is. you agree it it's, it's sort of yeah. visually it's overwhelming yeah you know and and oh by the way a shark just swam by and right there's all kinds of what's behind me yeah yeah there's topography <laughs> Yeah, so that that's true. That I guess that's the bad part about me being in the back. But yeah. if I want to know what's behind me, I just roll over on my back and look behind me. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. That's great. I'm excited for you. So, are you doing surgeries also? Well, yes. Like that's kind of evolving. Yeah. Okay. You know, I I used to. Well, I, the answer to that question is less and less. Yeah. Uh, as we've gotten busier and busier, uh, I've been able to just solely focus on fertility care. Okay. So uh, the days of uh, of me doing myomectomies or taking out fibroids mm -hmm. or tubes those are those are long gone. And I think that's been the general direction of fertility practices and fertility specialists. And and and, and almost simultaneously, you've seen the rise of kind of this super gynecologic surgeon you know the folks that 
and we have this is one I was just mentioning to you, uh, Dr. Swan, who's who, who's been fantastic, and they don't deliver babies, so there's no competition with my OB friends. So uh, you know, and that's all they do. They they don't want to deliver babies, and they don't want to do fertility care, but they're 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 um, aware. You know, so what I mean by that is they're sensitive to the fertility patient needs. You know, if a patient has a mass on their ovary, some OBGYNs or some folks will just take out the ovary. Well, that's we don't want that to happen in the fertility world. So uh, maybe let's just take the cyst out and leave the ovary. And those are the so what has happened over time is um, we've begun to refer all those out. And it's been beneficial to our patients because you're, they're then going to someone, that's all they do, eight hours a day. All they do is take out fibroids or take out swollen tubes or, or deal with endometriosis. And then that's left us to focus on fertility, 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 IVF, IVF, IVF. Um, the more specific question you asked me about was about polyps. You know, do, so we, you know, we have an office hysteroscope. So we um, look inside every cavity, uh, just as we did and do, I think, in Denver. So we find a lot of polyps. Uh, I took them all out myself uh, up until recently. I just got so busy, uh, I asked this, uh, this Dr. Swan if she would mind doing them. And so, uh, I, again, I trust her to do them. So she, she now does that. I guess, you know, uh, in a perfect world, I, would do, I could do everything, but it's just, it's just not possible. Yeah. And again, it goes back to kind of, it's demonstrative of what we were talking about. You've got to learn to, to, to share or delegate or, or uh, divide and conquer, if you will. So, and the patients have loved working with uh, Dr. Swan. And in fact, one of my patients told me they want her to be their everything. You know, like I said, well, you know, she doesn't deliver babies. And they're like, I want her to be my everything. So, yeah, we, we're doing so re- realistically, mostly we're doing egg retrievals and we, we do the occasional DNC, um, right. just as we did in Denver. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I think I'm. Things may change, but I'm not doing as many polyp surgeries. The other thing that was happening, too, is my patients were having to wait longer to get their polyp out because I couldn't. I was so busy. Couldn't get scheduled. I couldn't get a schedule. But if I say, hey, I can take your polyp out in, in six weeks or Dr. Swan can take it out next week mm-hmm. or two weeks, they're, 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 and they end up loving her anyway. Right, so. because then they don't miss a cycle and they exactly. can just keep moving forward. So uh, that's kind of where we are. And I think that specialization is just going to continue. Yeah. I've been told that there are infertility doctors um, who, who don't have hospital privileges right. at all. They, they, they literally don't. Um, you know, we can debate if that's good or bad, but I think yeah. that is uh, reflective of how things are going. Yeah, that's what I've seen also, for sure. So um, one thing that I haven't really had covered in this, in this podcast series um, are some unusual uterine anomalies. Okay. Um, do you feel like you have enough awareness about all of that, that, that it would be a good discussion? Sure. Okay. Things like... We see them all the time. Septums. Oh, gosh, yes. Arcuates. So... Yes. Um, let's address... Can we address one at a time? So sure. a uterine septum, I'll let you take over. Yeah, so I'll even... Again, I'll even start earlier. So you, you want to understand that there are, in all of us, men and women, two sets of ducks. And I don't mean duck as in quack, quack. I mean <laughs> D-U-C-T-S. Uh, there's the Mullerian ducks and the Wolfian ducks. And um, forgive the lack of uh, 
political correctness in this following, but in the following, but it's how I remember the Wolfian ducks form kind of the male reproductive system. And I, I, the reason why I say it's not perfectly politically correct is because I just think of the wolf as kind of a masculine creature. Alpha dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's how I remember it. It's how I was taught to remember it in medical school. And the Mullerian ducks uh, are what form the female, the majority of the female reproductive tract. And in fact, as you're aware, we call this group of anomalies Mullerian anomalies. And that's what this is leading up to. So think of them as kind of two linear hoses that run down the, the, the lateral, the, both the outside or the lateral aspect of the early embryo. And they migrate medially to the center. And so um, they, once they meet, that center line will dissolve and they make the uterus. So you can imagine when there's abnormal migration of the Mullerian ducts or the ducts don't dissolve, for lack of a better term, normally, you get an abnormally shaped uterus. Now, we don't know what causes this, so uh, I'll get that out of the way. Uh, we know it's definitely more common in the infertility world and in the recurrent pregnancy loss world. Um, so you, so then you start to, we sort of, and I would say it's a, we have a very general way of categorizing these abnormalities. And, and literally there's one million billion, I know that's not a real number, but there's <laughs> many, many possibilities. But we have to kind of have a, a language and a mechanism for describing them. And Probably the most common, which you were alluding to, is a, is a septum. So you want to think of uh, uh, these anomalies from the perspective of how the uterus looks inside, which that would be the part the baby would, for lack of a better term, see or live in. And then you want to think about the external contour of the uterus, what we call the serosal fundus, which is just what's it look like on the outside. Um, and there's some other things to think about. For example, renal anomalies or the kidneys are also made by the Mullerian ducts. So sometimes these ladies will have one kidney. Sometimes they'll have two, and one of them's in the pelvis. We call and it a pelvic kidney. And typically, we'll do ultrasound to exactly. verify there's yes, kidneys. Yes, yes, and, and I will. I remember a patient anecdotally, but I was doing an ultrasound on her, and there was something very strange in her pelvis on vaginal ultrasound. And I'm thinking in my mind, what the heck? <laughs> Only I was thinking another word is in this lady's pelvis. And um, I'm looking at it and I'm look, I'm like, this looks, first A, I'm not a nephrologist. I'm not a kidney. But I'm like, this looks like this could be a kidney in, in this lady's vagina, basically. Whoa. And, but, but you got to remember, when we look at kidneys, we use a transabdominal. We use an abdominal ultrasound. So we, nobody takes pictures of kidneys with vaginal ultrasounds because people aren't supposed to have a kidney in the vagina. And I'm thinking to myself, this has got to be a pelvic kidney that I'm looking at and on vaginal ultrasound. And sure enough, that was the case. She also happened to also have a Mullerian anomaly. Uh, so you were talking, up, to get back to what we were talking about, so the septum is the case where the top exterior, the serosal fundus of the uterus is, is largely smooth. Um, but there's a, a tissue band, as I call it, coming vertically down uh, towards the vagina. And those cases typically 
Uh, I think in 2020, and you could certainly serve the other infertility specialists, but those are, if you have a septum, we typically will try to minimize that septum. We'll try to, we call it a septoplasty or a septum resection. So we can go in through the cervix and we really just try to, it's kind of like an upside down mountain. So it's coming down, you know, and we try to blunt that peak and make it a hill or maybe something less. And, and, and the rationale for that is, is, is twofold. We think that it can improve pregnancy rates, and we think there's a pretty significant association with miscarriages and septums. Mm-hmm. That tissue is not normal. It's, it's not vascular like normal endometrium. So if an embryo tries to implant there, it probably wouldn't implant, or it might implant, and it might lead to a miscarriage. Yeah. So, the, that, so septum tends to be surgically resected. Um, but you want to make sure the top is smooth because remember, if it comes down like a bicornuate, which we can talk about in a minute, you know, you're going to take your scissors or your knife and you're going to pop right through the top of the uterus. And if you have a bicornuate or a didelphic uterus, actually the treatment for that is not surgery. Yeah. Treatment for that is just conservative management. Right. Right. So it's, can we go back to the kidney yeah, and the vagina? Yeah. So um, what happened there? You know, that, that was a funny patient. That patient got so frustrated with me uh, in, a, in, a, in a loving way, if you want to call that. But because she, it's your fault there's a kidney in her vagina? Well, she got frustrated because I made her see a urologist and I made her see a, a, a yeah. nephrologist because I want to make sure what it was. Right. Because it delays her cycle. Yeah. She, she is ready know, to be pregnant. One of my other mentors, Dr. Lyles, talks a lot about, he has a saying, and I think he's largely right that drives patients behavior and he and he's not being a smarty pants when he says this he says she just he said ryan she just wants to have a baby yeah and 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 i find that probably 99 out of 100 times if you want to explain the patient's behavior just really look at it through that simple kind of lens so yeah that's exactly right so i was here she was and i'm saying hey i think this is a pelvic kidney and she's thinking, okay, great, let's make a baby. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, hey, hold on, I want to make sure I'm right. Time out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, yeah, she ended up seeing uh, the nephrologist, the urologist, because this is relevant, Khalees, and let me explain why. Let's say this lady has a C-section. Oh. And they see this, and there's this funny mass in there. And let's say they're like, holy cow, this lady has a mass. And let's say they they decide they're going to cut out said mass. There are cases, there are multiple cases of pelvic kidneys being inadvertently resected by gynecologists. And there was a an article, and I may get the paper wrong. I think it was in the Washington Post of a neurosurgeon removing a pelvic kidney because they don't know what it is. It's not where it's supposed to be, so they think it's a mass. So the point being. A, you don't want someone to cut into it as hypervascular. B, you don't want someone to take it out because they just took your kidney out. And they didn't know they took your kidney out, but they did. They'll find out when they get the path back. And the pathologist said, oh, this looks like glomeruli or this looks like kidney. So, um, yeah, she. in long story short on that patient, um, uh, everything that I had speculated ended up being true. She got pregnant and uh, she ultimately came back and thanked me. And so not just... They- she thanked me for being so thorough, basically. Well, of course. She but understood. Tell me, tell me what they did with the kidney. Did nothing. 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 So There's nothing to do. Really? Just two kidneys. But you need Just to be Just an sure. alert in the chart. That's correct. Okay. I, and I always tell patients, I'm like, hey, you, if you ever have surgery, you tell them, don't mess, what, tell them, I got a kidney down there and don't you dare take it out. You know wow. what I mean? Because uh, all of a sudden, you know, you signed up for a C-section not to be a kidney donor. <laughs> yeah. Only it's not even a donation. Yeah. It just, you know. It, wow. So okay, 
Wow. All right. So you can get back to your yeah, bicornuates. So, and... so the, 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 the bicornuate that you usually think of is like bunny ears. That's how I think of it. So it's got the, the septum piece, but it indents down up at the top. So, uh, and those people usually have one cervix, as do the patients who have. Again, you got to understand there's still exceptions to all these rules. They're, they're as variable as people are. But it, we generally think of bicornuate as the bunny ears, um, and uh, they have one cervix. And, and in that case, you don't do anything. You, there's, there's just a general awareness. I mean, there's benefit to knowing because. Those patients are at risk for early delivery. Right. They are at risk for breech presentation. They are at risk for C-section. They are at risk for, for small babies or IUGR. They are at risk for uterine rupture. So uh, it's, it's like the kidney, though. Like You don't necessarily do anything, but, boy, knowing about it is a huge deal. Yeah. All right? So and, and then really, well, there's a couple others to kind of be aware of. There's the, um, the what we call the uterine didelphus, mm -hmm. which is um, really kind of two half uteruses glued together that's for that's how you can visualize right. it because you've got two separate canals and two separate uterus and often they have two separate uh, cervixes wow and and vaginas sometimes yeah sometimes yeah that's a good point they they um often have it's vaginal very rare. septum yeah? yeah yeah we don't see a lot of those you're absolutely right i can't tell you i've had so many people come in with i, I don't believe what it is until i prove it to myself of you know what i mean course. so so have you seen one of those yeah, you absolutely, have. absolutely. Yeah, a couple, yeah. couple. The other one to be aware of that is 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 potentially even more tricky. I call it the unicorn uterus, but it's really because patients understand that. But it's a unicornuate uterus. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> and those people have half of a uterus basically on one side or the other, and there's laterality there. So those are actually the people who are at higher risk for having kidney issues, right? Because the septum, think about it. That's a central. That's a midline issue. Right. It's just a defect in how the the two tubes didn't dissolve, whereas the unicornuate uterus is a lateral issue, and they'll have it on one side or the other. Right. Uh, and those people are problematic. They have one cervix, and they have one tube. Um, they probably have two tubes. It's just not connected to anything, because remember, the tubes don't necessarily come there. But, um, you know, uh, those people have half of a uterus effectively, and so they are really at risk for those obstetrical complications. And then to further complicate, sometimes they have something called a rudimentary horn, and we don't mean horn like people think like horns on your head, but that it's not even the best name. But that's what we call. They can have just like a little, uh, a little nub and maybe one third of a unicorn uterus. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about me when I was a resident in Tampa, Florida, at the University of South Florida. You know, we covered the ER, and this relates to a rudimentary horn. And she can have a non-communicating and a communicating horn. A communicating horn means there's connection between the main uterus and this little horn. That's actually not good. And I'm about to tell you a story why. So we went down, and or I went down and saw this gal, and, and she had clearly had what I was thinking in that moment and in my youth, an ectopic. She had a, a, a heartbeat and a baby, and, and what I was thinking was, of the fallopian tube. It wasn't the fallopian tube. You can see where the story gets going. But it was, I was a second year resident. I should have picked up on it, and I'll tell you why. This baby was about 13 weeks. <gasps> Big. Well, that would never fit if you just use common sense in a fallopian tube. Fallopian tube would have burst. Correct. Exactly. And that should have been my clue. 
But I will confess that I was so proud that I had diagnosed this and I went and looked at the scan and I had just done really what I thought was a bang up job. And um, so we took her to surgery and we got in there and uh, that, you know what it was? It was a pregnancy, but it was a pregnancy in a rudimentary horn. Wow. And she needed surgery. There, right. I mean, she, it, it just ended up, it's a more significant procedure. Uh, you have to have an awareness of where the, ur- the ureters are. And, and the problem with them, that is there's really getting into a significant risk of bleeding and hemorrhage. Because now you've got a much larger pregnancy in a, a hypervascularized kind of uterine appendage. So I, I those are, it, when you see those horns... You want to know if they're communicating because if they're communicating, it's often a good idea to get them cut out or, or surgically resected. Wow. So I've seen that since, by the way. So that was really? about 15, <laughs> 18 years ago. I remember I was, I was so proud and um, I, I remember that um, I wasn't proud because clearly we, we didn't get the whole picture. But that's, that's rare. Right. Uh, it wasn't just me. There were you know, four or five other doctors and radiologists, but we should have all kind of picked up on, you know, why is this 13-week pregnancy viable in a tube? The answer is it it can't be. Yeah, yeah. So. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So um, what other anomalies? Those are the main ones. Are they? Yeah. Those are the ones you see less? Yeah, you can can have, you mentioned... um, an arcuate. An arcuate to me is people should think of an arcuate as a kind of physiologic variant. It's normal. It's it's like being left-handed. There, you wouldn't think somebody with left-handed is abnormal. An arcuate is just a very tiny little kind of hill at the top of the uterus, and and we don't think that has much clinical consequence, and 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 we don't um, necessarily. Uh, operate on those. Now, the septum tends to be if a septum is one centimeter or 10 millimeters or greater, we typically tend to resect it. Yeah. And, that's, and, you, and that's your goal too surgically, to try to get that septum down to less than about a centimeter. Right. Now, with like the bicornuate uterus, mm-hmm. they can maintain pregnancy just mm-hmm. close to watch. That's yeah, pretty- it all, that all falls, that's all an obstetrical thing. Yeah, they, yeah. they do fine. And some of them do deliver at term. Yeah. Um, I have a patient right now. Uh, she does have a unicorn. I think she, I really think what she has a very unique situation. But she is a unicorn uterus. There's no doubt about that. Um, and we can see something on ultrasound, and I do think it's a horn. Ironically and interestingly, she's had two MRIs. The MRI doesn't see it, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and uh, actually, I think this patient's ultimately going to end up having surgery, mm-hmm. and we're going to find out. Mm-hmm. But uh, that particular individual has been pregnant before, but you know what? She delivered early, oh, yeah. and that's pretty standard stuff. Right. And when you see these people, they're, they're, there's a special thought process that goes along with them in the fertility world, which is the last thing these people need is multiples. Oh. Right, which is something that we that responsible clinics struggle right. with all the time. Right. Even though sometimes it's a fantasy of patients. I really yes, want twins. Yes, they triplets would be double fine coupons. <laughs> yeah, and we have to talk them down off of that, and and really, uh, you know, I have a chart, and it comes right out of the uh, ACOG practice bulletin, and it talks about 
17 times the cerebral palsy rate with triplets and 20 times fetal death rate. So, you, you know, you and I are, are both on that wavelength of, you know, I always tell patients, like my job, when they walk, I, don't, I guess my job's never really over, but I will say I breathe a sigh of relief when mom and dad walk out of the hospital with their baby. That's right. And that, but the point being there is uh, walking out of the hospital means baby's not in the NICU, Okay. Uh, we want to take home baby for that couple. We don't want them to have to live in the Ronald McDonald house and shuttle breast milk. That's not what any mom wants. They want to. They want that. They want to be home with their baby. So, of course, we want to minimize risk for all patients. But you know, these folks who have these uterine anomalies, the last thing they need. Well, I would just say that you, you really want to focus on avoiding multiples, and that's what's actually my discussion with this patient I was mentioning. Now she has some issues with egg health and diminished ovarian reserve, but you know you can make I think a very strong case against even clomidor letrozole, which have a four to eight percent chance of twins, and saying, "Hey, you have a unicorn uterus. You know you need twins like you need a hole in your head." So let's think about IVF. You know, and, and yeah, IVF costs money, and yes, it's more expensive. But I will tell you what, you it is it is less expensive than the nursery bill. That's right. And there's no Those are million dollar babies. They are yeah. very expensive. Yeah, very expensive babies. So with the didelphus uterus, mm-hmm. she's she can manage a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But how do you determine which side you'd like to use? Well, that's well, one thing that that's a great question, and, and, and that is a you know, we don't often, I think, do ultrasound guided IUIs. Right. I mean we do all Very seldom. Yeah, yeah, we do them, but uh, there are some difficult. I was going to say they're challenging, in challenging cervixes, or I'd say some unique circumstances, right? But I think this is a case where ultrasound guided IUIs has a place. So, I, I mean, the things I look at in that, and, and, and speaking of which, that was what we did for that patient that had the pelvic kidney back in the day. Oh yeah, you know, and that was probably eight or nine years ago. We. We ended up doing an ultrasound-guided IUI, and she may have had a didelphic. I can't quite remember her Mullerian anomaly. But, I mean, one, as you know, you need to know which side the egg's coming from. So, you know, it, typically, you know, if the, if, if the egg is on the right, you're going to put the sperm in the right horn. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's a place for it. Um, I think you could, you could argue you can even get more sophisticated than that. A lot of times they're similar in size, the two sides, the two horns. But, um, not, I mean, if one was a lot bigger than the other, in my opinion, it would follow logically to probably try to, I mean, you know you can't control which side the egg comes on, but, you know, yeah, the, the bigger side would be preferred. But most of the time what we end up doing is, you know, you know we do our pre-ovulatory scans, we find out which side the follicle's on, and you have the patient, um, you know, have a full bladder, and you want to put the sperm back in the side where the egg is is, is coming from. Right. And then they're monitored pretty closely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Early ultrasound. Yes, positive absolutely. HPG. Oh, gosh, yes. And that, that's, that's true for everybody. Yeah. You know, I, I, speaking of breathing, I always tell uh, our nursing, you know, our nursing and our, you know, it's, it, you're not out of the woods for an ectopic until you got a yolk, uh, or excuse me, a fetal pole or a yolk sac in the uterus. Right. And it stays put. Yes, correct. Yeah, and there's <laughs> a heartbeat and things grow and they don't. And nothing changes. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so your embryology team, mm-hmm. 
Very, very important. Correct. Yeah. Uh, how, I mean, how do you, how did you go about hiring your embryology team? Yeah. So another analogy, I, I think that fertility care is, is, is like a symphony performance. And so you have all of these different teams and so there's the doctor team and there's the nursing team and there's the embryology team and there's even your administrative team and your billing team. All of us are oriented around the success of the patient. And I can be the best doctor in the world, but if I don't have a good embryology team or a good nursing team, things are not going to go well. And the symphony analogy applies because if you've ever been to your kid's band or symphony presentation, everybody's not always on key. And if even one member or one flute or one saxophone, etc., is off, things don't sound good. And fertility care and IVF in particular, that's how it's that's what it's like. So the embryology team could not be more important. Uh, there is no doubt about that. And there's a million things they do in their lab and in their world that are impacting how things come out in the end. And, you know, I think that that gets underappreciated a lot. And so we've gone to great lengths to get, to put together a wonderful embryology team, balanced and support, I would just say supported by the best technology and the best equipment uh, to have the best outcomes. And, you know, we're really proud. And I know some other clinics have done this, but not many. Uh, and I, Kalisa, I don't know if I've shared, but we're getting ready to implement the witness system here for identification and management of egg, sperm, and embryos using radio frequency ID chips. Tell me about that. So, you know, every gamete, which is egg, sperm, and embryo, is is tracked basically using, for the most part, radio frequency ID chips. And these RFID chips are everywhere. When you when you run a five K, that's what tracks you. That's literally in that the bib that you you know connect to. You know what I mean? That you use the the little bobby pin or whatever to to hold on to your shirt. So this allow so every everything from IUI to IVF gets tracked, and we're going to have six separate surface computers. We have a sixty-five inch TV screen in the IVF laboratory. We have a sixty-five inch TV screen in the procedure room, and the patients themselves get little proximity RFID cards, and the embryos themselves are. You know, we freeze them on the tiny little straws. Right. So we don't have a radio frequency ID chip that small, nor would it probably survive minus 196 cells. But right. we have, for those folks, we have a, a, a barcode. So every time, so what will happen as an example in an IUI is the patient will, you know, we, we, the, the sperm will get tracked and there's, there's all kinds of Every kind of location has a chip reader in it, built into it. It's all connected. And so uh, as an example, at the end, when we bring in the wife's sperm or the donor sperm for that matter, mm -hmm. 
the nurse will put will will basically scan that sperm sample and it'll pop up on the computer and the patient will have to identify that that's correct. Oh, that's really awesome. And that happens, and that's IUI, right. an IVF lab. Right. It's built into the hoods. It's built into everything that we do. Right. So right now when um, the spouse or the donor collects, mm -hmm. they then get a barcode on that? Yes. And then that barcode... Or a radio frequency ID chip. Okay. One of the two. Okay. And, for example, you know, it's the same day IUI. Right. So then um, then once that's spun down, mm -hmm. they actually physically take that barcode with the sperm. Correct. It's on the computer. It's been Correct. logged. Correct. And match it. To well, and then what will happen is the, the lady, the wife, or the, the, recipient. the recipient. Yeah. Correct. Will scan her card. And that'll say, and the computer knows that's Jill Smith because that's she so just cool. scanned her card. Yeah. And then we'll have to scan the sperm right. or the eggs. And right. So say you're doing an embryo transfer. Mm -hmm. So that's radio frequency. That'll be, yeah, that'll be RFIDs. And, and um, in, our in our procedure room, I think you've seen it, there's a huge TV on the wall. Right, right. So that'll be linked into the system. So, you know, back, I say back in the old days, it's not there, but, you know, in the standard system, which, by the way, an important point is witness is not, does because you have the witness system doesn't mean you stop doing all the things you normally do. Right. Double, you continue, triple check. You continue to, this is yeah. meant to supplement things. Yeah. And so, yeah, you'll do, but but I, I, I'm sure you remember at Embryo Transfers, we, 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 and we do this to this day, in addition to all the timeouts and all the checks and everything, we write the patient's name upside down on the actual uh, dish. I say upside down. We write it on the back the of the dish yeah. backwards on yeah. the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, this is kind of like that, but it's designed. Uh, it, it's a computer. We log everything. Everything gets logged and everything gets saved forever and yeah. ever and ever. So there's a continuous chain of custody regarding eggs, sperm, embryos, etc. So I'm 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 pretty excited about that. And and we've done that we we've had no issues ever. Yeah. But we've done that because we want to do more than the minimum. We've done that because I think it's what I would want if I were right. a patient. Right. Because how we've been doing it back in the day is I would go to Andrology. Mm -hmm. We would verify the sperm together. Yeah. And you would still do that. Sign on it. Yeah, all that so, stuff would still happen. So already two people have signed yeah. on it. And at then, least. At least. Right. Because there's actually three because yeah. the, the uh, donor. Correct. Of the yeah, sperm there's at least three. Signed. At yeah. least three. So that's three there. And Minimum. Then, and then when we go into the IUI room yep. for the procedure, yep. then um, they the sign. recipient signs. Yes, so you got at least you, four signatures correct. on that. And now. Now it'll be a fifth. People feel safer when they have a computer doing it, I think. I think they understand. I just think it's another level. And yeah. frankly, I think that if we're doing a podcast in 10 years, this will be what everybody's doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've just, we're not going to wait until CAP or the state or the FDA makes us do it. We're just going to do it because we think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So is it just software you're having to... Acquire so in order to have software, hardware. There, so 
Um, there's the, there are, I don't know, maybe uh, four by eight. There's RFID proximity chip readers. So okay. if you've got a patient's sperm or, or, or the dish, you set it right on this, on this, on the proximity reader and it reads it. You don't even have, it knows it because the chip is, the chips in many cases are built into the plastic ware. Okay. Does that okay. make sense? That makes sense. There's a few exceptions where you have, like I said, the, the embryo straws because they're so right. tiny and they right. have to be frozen okay. in liquid nitrogen. When you can, and someday, they're, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they very soon come up with a pre-built, you know, radio frequency ID chip that's built into a straw. Yeah. But it's only a matter of time. But yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised they haven't figured that one out yet, yeah. honestly. But this is pretty new stuff. I mean, there's there's maybe three systems on the market. Um, and this was the – we – one of the systems uses barcodes, and it's all barcodes, like 100% barcodes. Um, barcodes are – they just they just leave more – opportunity for issues radio right. frequency id chips are automatic you just set it in the the little stand you've got your sperm and it's built into it and it reads it and it pops up and if you set jill smith's uh or or let's say jim smith's sperm in there and you got jill and you got J jane Don't. jones's it tells you <laughs> it, it it the whole system locks down wow you know, and, and so um, I think it's it, it's really peace of mind. And but I just feel like the writing's on the proverbial wall, and and it's you know, it's just going to continue to be something that is going to. I just think there's going to be some problems out there right. from time to time, and right. and we want our patients to have that peace of mind, and and frankly, we have the peace of mind too. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, you so you said that. there's three about three that are out on on the market now mm -hmm. for the system, mm -hmm. and you narrowed it down to witness. We did, we did, because yeah. we like uh, there. I think they've been at it the longest, which frankly isn't a super long time. You know, we're not talking about decades; we're talking about years. Well, IVF hasn't been around right. that long either. Right. <laughs> so yeah, and we didn't. We the barcodes would be a barcode system would be would be better than nothing but you know these are big undertakings you're talking about a, a, a lot of hardware and they impact workflow and the last thing you want to do is mess with your embryologist workflow oh, and yeah. cause a problem there this is the most unobtrusive in the workflow and and so we and also too i'm just I don't think barcodes are where it's going to be in 10 years. I, I, I think it maybe might work for a few years, but um, it's going to move into these radio frequency ID chips. So that's why we went with them. There's a third platform, uh, and I think it's called Tomorrow. And um, I just didn't – it wasn't ready for prime time, and we wanted to do something. So we've been looking at doing this for, again, uh, over two years. Yeah. So embryology is pretty excited about that, I'm sure. Yeah, they're excited, but yeah. you know our embryologists. They're yeah. they're very superstitious and <laughs> they don't like change. Yeah, that's right. They don't like change. <laughs> Things are working so good, right? That's now. exactly right. Um, but but they know that they're they're excited, but they're nervous because they just want it to be perfect. Yeah, and I think it will be perfect. Yeah. So, what other areas of um, blue sky um, would you like to talk about? 
Well, you kind of touched on it. I, I yeah. think that, you know, I, I look at what we can offer patients. And I think that, to kind of put it in business terms, um, our two most important products are pregnancy rates. And, and, and that's important. Live birth rates. Yeah, live birth rates. Um, and I think, and I think that's pretty recognized. I think that a fair number of people understand the importance of, of high pregnancy rates. By the way, in the context of a, an average low number of embryos transferred, right? I mean, if you're putting five embryos in everybody, uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. But if you can put, you know, like us, uh, we're, I, I, I might misquote you a little bit in terms of numbers, but we do a very a handful of double embryo transfers every year. I think we probably do three to three or four yeah. annually, maybe five. Uh, so, so we have one embryo and great pregnancy rates. The point is, again, it goes back to my analogy. You want to take home baby. And um, twins aren't necessarily terrible, but you're probably not going to walk out of the hospital with twins and two days. They're going to do some nursery time. And we want the healthiest possible outcomes for our patients. So, Do you know, most of your patients understand that when you're explaining it to them? Or? <clears throat> I, yes, I think, the, I think pra practices get reputations. And a lot of people walk in there and they understand our emphasis. I mean, if you're somebody and you are thinking about going to do IVF, and you want to put three embryos back, they're not going to come to Blue Sky because we're just not likely to do that. So I don't think they ever, you know what I mean, yeah. become our patient because patients are so smart and they're so savvy and they do the research and they look on blogs and chat rooms and, you know, so... Listen to podcasts. <laughs> listen to podcasts, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you want, if, if, if you want a six embryos, that's just not going to happen here. I'm just not the, we're not the clinic and I'm not the doctor for you because we practice responsible medicine. And I really, really, really have to be pushed to do too. And, and I sit down with every patient. Every single patient has a frozen embryo transfer consult with me and we go over these things. And in fact, uh, we have a special form if you want to put two back and, and, and there are cases for that. Again, um, you want to individualize care. It, you know, we have a special form that we ask that the patient sign. So that they, and it's nothing terrible, but it says, hey, we, we understand the risks. And mm -hmm. we, really, we counseled you We counseled them. We thought about them. We give them the American Society for Reproductive Medicine Committee statement on embryos to transfer. I give them the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists um, Committee Bulletin on, and I, I was using this back in, in Colorado, too, that, that goes over the risks associated with twins and high-order multiple gestations. So you were asking, yeah, you know, I think most most do. You certainly get those folks, like you said, who who want to put two back, and and it just kind of we're always respectful, but it's it's just antithetical to what we're trying to achieve. And I will tell you though, um, when you have a discussion, if you actually take the time, which I think some doctors do not, to explain to the patient why, okay, they they often are like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They're you know? receptive. Yeah, they're very receptive. I always tell the patients, and I say within reason, you can have as many babies as you want, but let's have them one at a time. 
you know, if you want to have a large family, you want to have four kids or five kids, that's, I'm good with that, but let's have one at a time. Yeah. Okay. I joke around, but not joke around. And this is what I tell patients. I say human women are not made for litters. Right. We're, we're not. No. It doesn't work. So, yeah, I mean, you asked about things that, that, that so one thing is, we're, we're very proud of our pregnancy rates, especially in the context of a low number of embryos to transfer. So that's important. Um, I think, and, and, and I, this may surprise you a bit, I, I think I'm maybe just a little bit more proud of how we take care of our patients in the context of, you know, really doing a good job. And everybody says they do a good job. I mean, nobody's like, yeah, hi, I'm Dr. Smith. I'm going to do a bad job for you today. But I mean, there's walking the walk and talking the talk and, and we really do it. And what, and what I hear from my patients, they feel when they come to us and they've had previous care, they more often than not, they're not leaving their old practice because they didn't get pregnant. I mean, they're here because they didn't get pregnant. Because if they were pregnant, they wouldn't be sitting in my office. Uh -huh. But the reason why they don't want to do another cycle or another transfer with their previous clinic is because nobody listened to them. Nobody treated them like an individual. It was, the, you know, they don't say it this way, but they say, you know, it was a monologue, not a dialogue, meaning the doctor just told them whatever he or she wanted to say and walked out of the room and they didn't get any time to talk to the doctor. And so I think I'm probably more proud of uh, our Cheers Bar version of fertility customer service, maybe a little bit, uh, than I am of our pregnancy rates. And you know, I just feel that, yeah, there's there's always going to be venture capitalist group or hospital systems or academic systems who are big and, and you know, they have things to offer. But they're never going to be able to offer that individualized customer service. And they're never going to be able to adapt and be flexible uh, and evolve as quickly as they should. So to me... You know, that is a big part, if not the part, of who we are. And our patients, they, they really respond to it. You know, some of my proudest moments, and this is um, uh, will surprise some people, is, you know, it won't surprise people to know that not everyone that walks through our doors gets pregnant. We wish it were different. And that was something I grappled with a lot in my early years. You know, no matter how hard you tried and you prayed and maybe you stood on your head in the corner and uh, you, did, you did anything you could, not everybody got pregnant. But some of my proudest moments are patients who we haven't been successful with, who still refer to us. Because the reality is everybody's happy when they're successful. I mean, you know, yeah, Dr. Riggs is great. He got us our baby. But you, and, and I, I love that. And I love that compliment. And I love the accolades. I love for my team to have the accolades. But I think personally, I'm maybe a little more proud when, you know, if we're not successful, that uh, that couple still sends somebody to us. Because that's like, that's, that's the ultimate honor. Because even though we weren't successful, they still felt like we 
left nothing on the field. We did everything we possibly could, which again goes back to my, I tell everybody, you know, we are going to treat our patients like family and family that we like. So, <laughs> um, you know, we had a, a lady uh, not too long ago who, interesting story, she was uh, early 40s, ha had pretty good egg health. And we did an egg retrieval on her, and unsurprisingly, she made plenty of eggs. But the quality wasn't great. And so when we biopsied and analyzed her embryos, they were all abnormal. Mm -hmm. So she and I had a chat. And again, this is important. When, when things go great, patients don't need you as much as when things are not going great. And I think doctors miss the boat on that. What I mean is... If, if, you're, if you're at our clinic, of course I'm around and I'm available if things are going well. But if things are not going well, that's when I get up front and center for you. And so, and I think a lot of doctors kind of crawl under the table when something happens and, you know, but that's, that's exactly the opposite of what it should be. So what we met after that first cycle where all those embryos weren't normal. And I said, you know, your early 40s and, you know, and they'd done IVF at a previous center, at, at a good center. So it was kind of round number two. And we kind of had gotten the same thing they did. And you have to acknowledge and you, ha you have to be honest with patients. And something else that physicians in the fertility don't, world don't do, you got to be honest with these people. Given the false hope might just be worse. And they're going to find out the truth anyway because nature doesn't lie. So anyway, and I said, you know, you, you're, we're over two here. When I say over two, I mean, there's clinic A before we came and then there's blue sky and we're all getting embryos, but none of them are genetically normal. This is largely an age. And I said, you know, you're not going to be surprised. I said, what do you think about donor egg? She wasn't happy uh, with that option. And that's not uncommon. And she said, I want to do another cycle. And, you know, so we have this discussion. It's like, hey, if you have X amount of financial resources, are you sure you want to allocate that to another cycle with your own eggs or another cycle with donor eggs? And she was great conversation because she said, I don't want to do donor eggs. I want to do another cycle. And if I'm not successful, then I'm going to hang my spurs up and ride off into the sunset. And I said, okay, I'm comfortable with that. I get it. Yeah. She knew all. So she did go again. And um, same thing. Yeah. Multiple embryos, all abnormal. And well, the, the reason this story relates to what we were talking about is she wrote us such a nice email, and, and I'll paraphrase. And you know, she just said, "I just want to thank everybody, and we would we know everybody did their best, and we would absolutely refer to you, and we just appreciate everything you guys did for for us." Uh, that story has kind of a follow up. Uh, that particular individual has now changed her mind. And we're in the middle of a donor egg cycle. Wow. So uh, I just, th I think if she'd been at a different clinic, and this is me tooting our horn a little bit, our horn a little bit, and I think that if she had been handled differently, perhaps less compassionately, perhaps, she, I, I just think she might have been inadvertently or inappropriately, she never would have got there. Does that make sense? It does make sense. She would have had a bad experience and she would have walked away and uh i think she's going to have a baby soon that's so great. but she came to that all on her terms you never right. want somebody to do a donor egg cycle when they're not okay with it right. and i always tell them that you know and, and they always when they come back they always act like they need to apologize like dr riggs i know what i said but you know there's a big big kind of pause and 
like, but I changed my mind. I'm like, great. Yeah. I love that they changed their mind. They think I'm going to be upset. I'm like, wait a minute. This is how we get you a baby. Are you kidding? Right. So, um, yeah, we're real proud of that. That's, that's just what we do. It's the core of our being. I, I also think I tell people, um, you know, there's a lot of clinics that are fast food IVF. And uh, that's not us. We are not trying to do... We want to be cost conscious. We want to be cost effective. We want to be cost smart for our patients. But, you know, we're not about getting as many patients through our door as humanly possible. Uh, we won't do more IVF cases than, than we can safely do, than we can do extremely well. You know, and, and that's why we, from, from time to time, well, most of the time, over the past three years, I've had a wait list. Wow. For new patients, because I won't do more cases than I can, than I can really do and really do well. So, so we're not fast food IVF. We're over here seeing, you know, we're going to be, um, we want to be busy. I'm here to work. We talked about that already. Uh, we want to do plenty of cases. We want to definitely do enough to be really good at it, right? If you do five IVF cycles a year, you know, hard to be good at anything that you do only five times uh so you know, we want to do enough but we're never going to lose sight of 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 doing a really good job for each patient and each couple that's wonderful so your original dream way back when you decided to come back to kansas city to today mm -hmm. is this what you envisioned yeah, more. I, I, I just always think of myself as uh, that little boy who grew up in Wagner, Oklahoma. You know, I grew up in the country. My grandfather was a farmer. And when I say, I mean, you know, I, 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 I am obviously someone with ambition and I wanted to, to do well and I wanted to make a difference and you didn't ask me about this but frankly probably in the last few years you you do realize when you're 45 like me that you know maybe half your life is gone and you know you you do start to say I think I'm a good husband and I think I'm a I hope I'm a good dad and but what you start to even say, okay, but I want to do more. You know, I, I want to make a difference. And so, um, you know, I, you want to help people. And But anyway, you said, I just think we've been so much more successful than I would have ever envisioned. And, yeah, that's, that's hugely gratifying that, that patients have said, hey, in a way, not directly. I guess some of them probably directly have, but uh, they, they speak with their feet. And they, you know what I mean by that? They speak because they they let me be their doctor, and they've said, you know, your vision of what you all those years and working in other places, and and there were things that I learned at all of those places. But you know, yeah, it's huge to be able to say I think that my plan and my ideas and my thoughts, they generally were right with what patients have wanted. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, we, we, in a weird way, our, our growth is, it, it, it's great, but it has contributed to me working a lot 
yeah. so um, yeah, I never thought we'd be this successful. I I, I, I guess in my mind, I you got to understand. I mean, if I didn't, if I thought I was going to go out of business, I wouldn't have tried. So there must have been something in me that said this has got a good chance to work. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm always the guy that says, well, what if it doesn't? But yeah, we've been way more more successful. Another little story, and my patients will tell you I'm full of stories, but uh, <laughs> literally, well, I'll just, I, I want to maintain HIPAA. One of our first patients um, uh, was very complimentary, and uh, the husband was just a really, just a super brilliant guy. You could just tell. They were all smart, but he was... And he would, they were happy and they were graduating and going to their OB. And he basically, and I'm going to paraphrase, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Dr. Riggs, you've got a really good thing going here. And of course, me, I'm in the moment. I'm not, I'm just trying to do my darn best every day. And he says, you know what your problem's going to be? And I said, what? He said, it's going to be how you scale this to keep it so special. And... Uh, truer words have never been spoken. Wow. The struggles that we have as a clinic now are how do we keep that same culture, that same quality of individualized care when we're doing 200 egg retrievals as opposed to 47 egg retrievals? Mm-hmm. And those are the struggles that we have. And you can't, it, sometimes it takes a totally new and different system. You'd think, well, I'll just grow the system exactly. I'll just hire, you know, if I needed two more nurses or more. Sometimes you really have to reevaluate how you're doing it and doing it completely differently. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, I think that's where my experiences in Colorado paid a lot of dividends because uh, that's a that's a larger practice, and I, I did learn a lot yeah. watching how 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 things would change and how we would evolve and grow. So yeah, I, I'm. I guess I would say I'm humbled by what we've achieved, but um, I'm not ready to retire and I'm ready to take on the world with more exciting options. And, you know, who knows where it will lead? But to me, there's no real limit. And, you know, I'm arrogant enough to think that the care and service we provide here is is as good as anywhere in the country and anywhere in the world. And, you know, why not let other people Take, you know, why not grow? And what I mean by other people is, is is be able to offer that service, those services to other patients. So we'll see where we go. Yeah. Well, I'm super proud of you. I'm a proud well, mama. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You were there the yeah. early days. Yeah. You guys, and I did. I mean, this is you can't put a value on everybody I've worked with has taught me things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were this will maybe surprise you, probably not, but there were definitely people that I've come across uh, over the years who weren't that good. Mm-hmm. I learned from them too. Right. I learned how maybe not to do <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, how not right? to do it. It's perfect. So I, I yeah. saw this real valuable too. Yeah. I think the only question I didn't get to ask you was, do you see a difference in the clientele between Colorado and Missouri, Kansas City yeah. area. Um, that's a fascinating question, actually. So, you know, I, and I'm stereotyping here, so listeners forgive me a little bit. But, you know, I, I've kind of felt like the, the Colorado environment, this is my feeling before. And now then I'll tell you the how I feel now. 
I was a little bit worried about would um, people, would Kansas City folks or folks kind of more in the Midwest be receptive to uh, PGS testing, for example, because it can be a little bit of a touchy issue for folks. And there, uh, there were folks who, I'll just, I won't say too, but there were some people who I think felt like it would be, folks in the Kansas City area would be less receptive. Maybe because of we're in the, the, kind of in the Bible Belt or we're in the Midwest. Um, that has, it's been the opposite. Wow. Yeah, it really surprised me. I felt like I used to spend more time in, in the Colorado area talking about genetic testing of embryos. And, and, and again, we, nobody has to do it. It's elective for everybody. We give them the facts and let them decide. And it's that simple. Um, so that really surprised me. You know, I, I, I think, it, well, I certainly think that the folks up at the Lafayette office and the Boulder community had a different flavor to them. Uh, than, say, Kansas City. But that was true that the folks at the Lone Tree or Littleton office had a different flavor. Um, it, I don't know that it's that much different. Most of the time, for example, when I talk to folks about PGS, they're kind of like, well, how come nobody else talked to me about why, where Where has this been? Why wasn't this discussed at my previous clinic? And I just kind of say, I, I'm not really sure, sir or ma'am. So, you know, I, I, I have not found it to be that much different, honestly. I was pleasantly surprised in general to folks' receptiveness to genetic testing. I just think, you know, as our friend and colleagues sort of predicted, it's just been a, a relatively valuable tool for most patients. Yeah. Uh, do you want to put a plug in for Blue Sky? Where can they contact you? How should they? Yeah, absolutely. Call, call uh, our website. is uh, One of my patients told me this week, quote, our p- website is almost too good. So www.bluesky.fertility.com. The phone number is 816-301-5506. And, you know, uh, we're, we're here to help folks. And, uh, we're just going to treat people like their family. And I tell patients, too, I'm like, we're just going to earn your business the old-fashioned way. We're just going to do a really good job. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, dear. You're the best. Well, thank you. Fertility, Let's Be Honest is hosted by Kalise Cryer. Our executive producer, editor, and sound engineer is Kirsten Bitzer. Our theme song is Somebody to Love by Andy De Los Santos. Canon Fertility Vitamins and Supplements offers a product called NV that stands for Nutritional Vitamins uh, for Ovarian Health. And the biggest value in the NV is it has myoinositol in it. I know that's a really big word. <laughs> what? 
Myoinositol. So if you have PCOS, you've probably heard of this because um, sometimes it's used instead of metformin and those kinds of things, and it helps you absorb insulin. Yeah, so many people have PCOS and have that issue of absorbing insulin, and this is a great product for that. It's also in a powder form, and you can mix it with your protein shake or yogurt or oatmeal, and that makes it really convenient just to kind of take whenever. And another cool thing that Canon has done, because they recognized that in addition to NV, you end up having to also get um, acai, melatonin, and coenzyme Q10 in addition to that. They put it all in a packet together so that it's a it's a cheaper way for you to access this product. And what's so super cool is you get the NV powder form, and then in a daily tear-open packet, they've put together the acai, the coenzyme Q10, and the melatonin that you take once at night. I think people really appreciate when they can just not think about it, just tear open a packet, and then take whatever they need. Canon is so great about looking at the patient and just trying to help the patient through this process and make them as successful as possible. You can order NV or NV Plus on their website at canonco.llc.com.